So, Tyler, Roman, <laughs> it's the season of the witch. It's I've never felt more alive. <laughs> it's also the season for ghost stories and haunted houses. Mm-hmm. And you know, every day is a, is a haunted house. No, wait, what am I saying? <laughs> I grew up in a haunted house. No, you didn't. I did. I did. I think you told me this, and I think it was your sister scaring you. Uh, no. In fact, my mother still lives there. It's a house in Monticello, Minnesota, that was a... It sounds like a chant. Right? In front yeah. of the mirror. If you say it three times fast, Monticello, Monticello Minnesota. Minnesota. Like Pen15? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I can't stop. I'm gonna die. <laughs> I love that show so much. Um, no, my mom's house in Monticello, Minnesota was um, a nursing home or like a group home at the turn of the century. Actually, we found a newspaper clipping of the house from <laughs> the 50s. We didn't move in there until the late 90s. Let me, it, it looks like classic. It's got like a, a, like a little point at the top. And I don't know, I don't understand architecture. My mom always called it a witch's tit. And I'm like, that can't be what it's known as. <laughs> Are you talking uh, about the lookout at the top? Right, yeah. It's got like a little like a turret window and like the little point at the top of the house. And it looks like it's a witch's castle. Um, but it was a nursing home and all the, the bedrooms on the top floor all like had miniature sinks in them, which I always thought was really weird. Um, but yeah, a lot of people died in that house. There was one murder in, I think, the early 90s or the 80s before we moved in. And I remember my mom telling me, like, the realtor had to tell me that someone <laughs> did die in the master bedroom. And yeah, it's it was it's always been creepy. And I love that your mom didn't ever try to spare you. No, no. She's the one who <laughs> showed me Poltergeist. Tales from the Crypt was the show we watched every Threaten you with Mommy Dearest. I love it. She did, yes, yes. Yeah. I It was so long until I actually saw Mommy Dearest, and I realized that my mother had been quoting it this entire time. <laughs> like, I, I had a Comet bathroom experience where she's just, like, spraying Comet all over the place and screaming, and I'm just like, oh, this is abuse. You, you do realize how much you need to thank her. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so you are familiar but, living with ghosts. Haunted houses I've always loved. What about Amityville? I I know I've seen the first one. And I know that I've seen part four. Because that was on TV all the time growing up. And I did see the Ryan Reynolds remake because <sighs> Okay. I love the Amityville movies and and I read the book when I was a kid, and it was truly terrifying. And I love Amityville 2. I love Amityville 3. Now that I got this new box set that just came out with all of the 90s Amityvilles and rewatched them, I realized they're all they're pretty good. They're a lot of fun. They're really well made. There's great actors in them. Uh, okay. You know, some things are weaker than others, but they're great. They're great horror movies. They're great haunted house movies. What is the scariest thing for you in a haunted house? movie what is the scariest thing right for me it's like things moving on their own same thing in poltergeist with the the rotting meat just like oh for me it's always been when the entire history becomes revealed so in poltergeist it's when she finally falls into the pool and 
Now it's filled with skeletons and all the coffins are coming up. The puzzle pieces are falling into place and it's the horror of realization. And I think a lot of these Amityvilles are that. I love ghost stories. I love haunted houses. They're my favorite, favorite kind of film to watch. And on that note, we should introduce our new guest. Uh, He's a really good friend of ours someone that's been in the industry for a long time. He's been an educator for decades, and currently he's making his mark with Amityville Real Estate. We're super excited to have uh, Brian Norton with us today. He's a filmmaker, director, writer, practical effects guy, special effects, cinematographer, teaches filmmaking, and right now he's working on a book about the Amityville Horror film series. It's called, for God's sakes, Get Out. He has so much to say. I mean, he's become like the Amityville guy. Right. Just like we became the Elm Street 2 guys. <laughs> he's, he's on that path right now. I'm really excited for this book, not just because I like Amityville, but because he is an encyclopedia of horror himself. Right. Who is Super entertaining. Very fun to talk to. He has mm-hmm. been in the business for a long time. He knows everyone and he knows their secrets. So he's fun <laughs> to talk to. And he has more tea than Lipton. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. So welcome to Ghouls, Ghouls on Fifth. I'm Roman. He's Tyler. And when we're back, We'll be chatting with Brian Norton. Because of the obvious threat to untold numbers of citizens, this radio station will remain on the air day and night. You ready, Tyler? I was born ready. That's a lie. (laughs) It's Brian Norton. Welcome, Brian. So we like to break the ice by jumping into what we call the top five segment. Okay. Roman sent you a category. We would love to hear your top five practical effects. Well, you know, know, I'm still stuck in the 80s with that, you know, like the original Friday the 13th. I mean, back then, no one had... People really weren't used to seeing that kind of stuff. I'm like, oh my God, how did they do some of that all in one shot? When the girl got her throat slashed, that was like, that got me into makeup effects. It really did. The Kevin Bacon one was really amazing, but I could always tell how that was done. And it, but um, those those practical effects were just the, amazing to me. And Elm Street 2 had amazing practical effects too. But, yeah. uh, you know... I, I wish I had more to talk about. I could talk about the least effective practical effects. The ones, <laughs> yeah, let's do the, that. The ones in the entity where her boobs are being squeezed. By oh, right. <laughs> what was that, like compressed air or something? Like, how was that working? I think it was like the Kevin Bacon thing where she's got her head in a hole on the bed and she's kneeling down and they attach a body to it. And, uh, oh, and okay. one of them is just lit really wrong. And it's, it's, filled, it's filmed from an angle at the end of the bed with her naked bush gigantic in the foreground and it's just a right. silly looking thing and it's a fake body and it's just it's a silly looking thing and it belongs in another movie i remember th- like being a kid and asking my mother what the scariest movies were and she would always talk about the entity and i remember having to go rent it and thinking it was super scary and being like this is really boring yeah <laughs> 
This is like a bad Lifetime movie. It is like a Lifetime then, movie. It's two hours long. It is oh, a lot it's of drama. It's way too long. Yeah. But, but you know, I do remember a, the score, and I remember the, like, we're going to freeze him in the high school gym or something. Like, that was yeah. bizarre to me. The uh, That score, they used the track of it in Inglorious Bastard. Now, that's another movie that Barbara, Barbara Hershey would not talk about. But now that it's popular again, she's on an interview with the um, Screen Factory release, and she's like, the essence of my character. I mean, she's really dining out on it now. It's like, you bitch, I remember when you were... <laughs> and I've been doing that with my Amityville interviews. Like, come on, Diane Franklin, I have the interviews where you are just bad at Amityville too, and you can't fool me. And she's like, ah, I'm busted. You know, so like, <laughs> Boston makes me feel good, you know? <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, I, I, I think a lot of people take for granted the struggle that actors have just trying to promote their careers as they go along and doing what they do and what it means to them at the time. You know, a lot of horror fans go to these conventions and they're like, oh my God, we idolize them. They meant so much to us. It's like the other side of the fence isn't quite that way. Right. They're yeah. not as a, they're not as in love with the work that they've done as the fans are. Sure. Unless, and that's kind of like, oh. Until someone like, unfortunately, like Tarantino, I think he's annoying, but he can get people to reevaluate stuff. It's um, true. I, I would, you know, when I was a film teacher, I had access to Tammany Hall, giant movie theater, and I would show all my 35 millimeter prints and invite all the students. And if I showed something like Amityville 2, people were like, why are you showing this? Now if I showed it, it would be a full house because Tarantino said in an interview, he gave people permission to like it, you know? So I think when... Martin Scorsese said in an interview that The Entity was one of the scariest movies. I think that that might make Barbara Hershey change her mind, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I had Warrington Gillette, who played Jason in Friday the 13th, Part 2. He was in my Penny Dreadful um, with Betsy Palmer, so it was like a reunion. And uh, I brought him to the convention, you know, and, and he was like, these gross people and they're wearing sweatpants that say zombie on them and everyone's smoking. <laughs> it's like, don't they have any, um, I'm in New Jersey, no one has any respect for their bodies. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so it wasn't the, the fandom of Friday the 13th didn't help him or didn't impress him. But when, you know, if a, well, an academic person liked it, maybe. So what was your it's, other, your it's other not question? A the, my favorite practical effects. What other films kind of have great practical effects that inspired you or that you would use as a good example of things done well? They really, they really would be the thing. You know, if you look at some of those, uh, most of the effects from the original, I mean, the, the remake, the John Carpenter one, some of them are still like, oh my God, you know? And I took a lot of those and ripped them off for my, the episode for Crypt TV I did called Jack Attack, right. where uh, I, I just, because I didn't know how to do effects and I, I looked at all these companies and they all wanted a fortune. So I'm like, well, let me figure it out myself. So I got some ideas of putting things in reverse like he did in the thing. And uh, so that stuff, when the dog transforms and all the intestines fly out at the camera, we did the exact oh, same thing. I love that. Jack attack. Um, so the gore practical effects, I think, well, I think the one with Tina getting thrown around the room and not around Elm Street, you know, that is a handmade effect with, you know, the room going around and her stomach being slashed open. Um, I think that is a really neat effect. Even though it might not look 100% great, I really, really, 
Oh, I, I think it looks 100% great. I know, it is so effective, especially with the, the sound design and the music. Like That she is still one of the most terrifying and scenes. She, and she hits his head, the guy's head and knocks him out. You know, that is that is some mean stuff. Yeah, right. that was really good. And uh, I remember the, the remake copying that effect and just doing it all wrong. Yeah. She sounded like, you know, laundry in a dryer, just like flopping yeah. around. Yeah. Like, this is and, and maybe that ridiculous. shot in the remake was really complicated to do, but they put just enough CGI tweaking on it to make it look the whole thing with CGI. You know, so Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think some of the stuff they still do practical, but then they do the, the brush ups afterwards and that just makes the whole thing look like it was done in a computer, so Right, like the magic wears off. The magic wears off a little. Yeah, it does. It does. You know, I just posted the scene on Facebook, the the uh, stop motion scene from Elm Street Three where they fight the Freddy skeleton, and that's like done in the the claymation, um, you know, Harryhausen Harryhausen stuff. And you know, it totally looks fake. But when that skeleton popped up in 1987 in the theater, everyone cheered. And yeah, I don't know because <laughs> it's great. Because it is great, and it's handmade, and it does look it does look goofy. Right, ever since uh, Scary Movie 2, when she's like, A skeleton? You're, you're afraid of a skeleton? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, skeletons will never be scary, and if you try to make them look all right. CGI, you've, you've lost. Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> oh, also, of course, um, the howling, uh, those makeup effects were so good, but they linger on them for too long if you watch them like that. That werewolf transformation scene is like endless now. It's like it's about 20 minutes. Oh right, yeah. I still think it's one of the best ones ever, though. Yeah, yeah. it is good. Is it, you know they because it's got the creepy lighting on it. I like what John Landis said in theory about America Werewolf in London, but I do think it works against it. He said, for once, I want a werewolf transformation, a full body werewolf transformation with a naked man in a well lit room, and I think the well lit room just makes it look a little rubbery. Um, but I, I like that he didn't want to cheat, but the howling, it's really creepy looking. It's really scary. They got the, you know, the fog and the, and the shadows on him, so it, it, it looks good. I've been, I've been re-watching all the howlings. Like, they're, they're all on Prime. My and gosh. actually, I love howling too. You're love a werewolf. It. Your sister's a werewolf. Yes, I fucking love and that And you one. know, on some prints of that movie, it's got the original title, Howling 2, Sturba, Werewolf Bitch. That's right, what? yeah. yeah. Howling 2, Sturba, Werewolf Bitch. Sturba's the name of the... Werewolf Bitch. They're just going straight to the heart. The only thing I remember about it is the end credits where they keep re-showing the shot of her tearing her top away. I think that's when they realize, oh my god, we've got a sneaker. No, the legend is... <laughs> the legend is, is that when um, Sybil Danning went to the screening in L.A., and that happened. She ran out of the theater disgusted that they had looped her topless seat over and over again. <laughs> I mean, I think it's trashy and stupid and brilliant. <laughs> okay, I want to segue into your current work with a silly question, okay? Why do we love haunted houses? Why do we love haunted houses? I don't, you know, I don't know. I, uh, I did a movie called uh, Penny Dreadful in 2006. Now this is before the TV show. They, you know, this term Penny Dreadful has been around for 200 years. And the minute I make a movie, there's another movie called Penny Dreadful, and there's a TV show. But anyway, <laughs> mine's the one with Mrs. Voorhees in it. 
But um, I thought for once that when the woman finds out that the house is haunted, she's really excited. She's like, hey, we live in a haunted house. Because um, that would be what I would think, you know? So Yeah. Um, I, I love haunted houses. I, I hope everyone does. Is, is, it, is it true that everyone loves a haunted house? It is honestly my favorite kind of movie. I certainly do. Absolutely. If I had a party in the Amityville house, would you do a Ouija board with me? Ouija board, I would do like a full-on, you know, free association body transformation. I would go into a trance. I would do it all. Okay. I will be Tawny Katang. It will be fun. <laughs> Close the portal, Jim. I mean, I would be more <laughs> Zelda Rubenstein, but... You know, Tawny Katane is invited as well. Yeah. Do you know this, uh, writing this silly book, and by the way, when you said I've been teaching for decades, that made me sound really old. I started when I was really young, because I'm only 29. (laughs) Right? You started when you were 10. It was wonderful. Yes, I was a nerd. I was a film nerd, so I had a lot to teach. Um, Shocking. Well, no, I I, I taught, I was, I taught for 15 years, so yeah, a decade and a half. Yeah. And I was a chairperson. You know, teaching people isn't easy. Uh, you could be a encyclopedia of knowledge, but translating that to other people is an entirely different set of skills that not everybody has. Have you always felt confident that that's something you could do? Only because I had three degrees in film. You try using those, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah, I have, right. you know, why, why didn't anyone stop me? And I've had some of the best <laughs> teachers and some of the worst teachers, and uh, you sort of crib from them. But... Uh, yeah. It's always the assumption that after film school that you would hate movies because you know how they were made or you'd be more jaded. But my goal was for people to be more excited and more open um, and, and realize that there can be art and credibility in any genre and not come out being the quintessential film snob, which most of my NYU brethren did. You know, <laughs> uh, no, yeah, I mean, right, seriously, right. like, um, you know, why does it take? Quentin Tarantino to say in an interview that Amityville 2 is one of the greatest sequels ever made because now everyone gets it. But before, everyone would be like, why are you, why are you, you know, they, they weren't given permission to like it until a famous person or important person said something. Do you know what I mean? Right? Isn't that ob- obnoxious? It is obnoxious. Yeah. And, you know, the gay community is, 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 is almost guilty of it too with, with camp. You know, sometimes they have to be told what camp is. But, uh, yeah, oh, it's absolutely obnoxious. It's like, um, it's like when you're joking, someone said, uh, I forgot who it was, a famous person, someone asked, what was the difference between, what's the biggest difference when you became famous? He said, suddenly all my jokes got funnier. And uh, <laughs> yeah, but I remember Spike Lee was my teacher and Spike Lee, everyone was like thinking that it, it, he was really smart. His favorite, his favorite um, movie was like the Boston Strangler. And, and when he flipped out when he realized that students didn't know who Richard Fleischer was. Richard Fleischer directed Amityville 3D, but he also directed all these other great movies. And he's like, you're in your third year of graduate film and you don't even know who Richard Fleischer is? He said, but I'll bet you know who directed fucking Fargo. And he walked out of the room. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. I, I have to ask, like, what directors did you scold your students for not knowing? Oh, well, listen, I'm a, uh, this is where I lose friends still, but I'm, I'm charming, <laughs> I'm charming and I'm cute and I will cover it by just saying, well, at least I could make you think and you don't have to agree with me. But the older I'm getting or the more experience I'm getting, I'm becoming 100% anti or tourist, meaning that when we throw it at really? Yes, I have to be. Um, 
I don't know when you realize. So no one's ever going to say, "Do you like shoulder?" You know, no <laughs> one's ever going to say, right. "Do you like Fleischer?" You know why? Because Richard Fleischer, every movie he made was different, and he didn't take the vanity credit. And you can't look at something like Doctor Doolittle and Amityville and say, "Oh, there's a style there." Um, people's style change depending on what genre they're doing. So I'm noticing that a lot of the directors whose last names are adjectives now, meaning we say them by their last name, are ones who put things in there, uh, uh, who have their own shtick that they put in there, and it should be dictated by the movie. Like, I, you know, I would hate to think that any movie I make in the future is going to look like the previous ones that I did, you know. But also I'm learning that most of that is, is PR. It takes a lot of money to become an adjective, and, uh, you know, people yeah. have to be taught that, you know. But I, yeah. but I was really good at fooling the students because I would get them to, I trick them into like saying like what are their favorite movies. I'll never forget it was like, uh, hey, who's seen Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? And everyone will raise their hand and I'll, you know, and they'll say, oh yeah, we watch it every week Easter. This is any from anywhere all over the world. I right? international students, and not one person in 15 years of teaching could tell me who directed that. And the guy's name is mentioned in big yellow letters on this fucking brown background that <laughs> pops out at you. <laughs> And I'm like, well, you just said that you've seen the movie a million times. Your goal is to be a director. The movie is influential to you. It's got DVDs, Blu-rays, toys, lunchboxes, coffee table books. How come you don't know the director? And right, right. And they would, and I'd say, I'll tell you why. Because Mel Stewart wasn't. He didn't franchise his name, and he did a lot of movies, and everyone was different. And then they're going to say, well, he had no style because his movies didn't look different. And uh, so they, at least it would get them to think. Um, you know, when, when uh, Mel says, yeah, I feel like I'm giving that defensive lecture again, but when Mel Stewart died, within 24 hours, Spielberg was on a plane, George Lucas was on a plane, Francis Coppola was on a plane. Like, important people know, you know, who these, who these directors are. Absolutely. Martin Scorsese, when I met him, he, he loved genre movies, you know? Right. So... The other one is like Nightmare Before Christmas. Nightmare Before Christmas. Like who directed Nightmare Before Christmas? Everyone raised their hand. Tim Burton. And these are like Henry Selleck. Yeah, these are people who want to be film people. And I said, well, if you see the movie, it clearly says directed by Henry Selleck. And they and then when you tell them that Tim Burton was one of eleven executive producers, it's almost like telling them there is no Santa Claus. They're like, oh, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so I don't know, but it is weird how. It used to be, I think, that you would be a director, and then after you died, maybe someone would reevaluate your body of work and maybe call you on a tour. Now, people, directors call themselves auteurs when they've done two movies. They start marketing themselves that way. Like the new film from Ari Oster, like, dude, you directed one. You know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Do you think that's a wise choice? I, I personally don't like it but it, it but it worked I, I would never do it but of course i'm sitting here talking to you right now and i should be making a movie um <laughs> we should all be making movies right now and we can't i so. think it's vulgar i would never i would never take that that vanity credit i really i really really couldn't i i just couldn't especially uh, i don't know it's uh it's been the bane of my existence and it's just getting worse me you know the the three amityville movies the first three were all directed by really respected directors. I mean, the, the first movie, the, the first one, the guy, you know, he directed like a ton of famous movies, like Cool Hand Luke and everything. And, 
and I'm supposed to say that he was a hack or a journeyman because like, and I interviewed actors, I interviewed Lee Grant, all these actors who worked with him. They said, what? He was an amazing director. Who calls him a hack? I said, I right. never heard of him because his name is Stuart Rosenberg. Or they'll say he's a journeyman or a hack or someone who had no vision. She says, these are just people who don't know film. And then Richard Fleischer, you know, directed 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and Soylent Green and, you know, Dr. Right. Doolittle. <laughs> the Eddie Murphy version? No, no, the, the original Best Picture nominated version, which I've never seen, but uh, just classics in every genre. So doesn't make Amityville a good movie. Absolutely not. But I think that's what's interesting. When people ask me, do I like Hitchcock? I always say I never met him. <laughs> right. So, wait, so do you not think Amityville is a good movie? Um, listen. <laughs> no, I know, I know there's love. There's love for it. I am, I am going to be completely honest with you. I think sometimes we romanticize things from our childhood. And uh, yeah. the only time I, I'm going to get personal in the book, I've decided, is in my introduction. I'm going to try to keep myself out of the reporting on the making of the movies um, I don't want it to be like my essay or me rambling esoterically about the film. So, but um, whether they're good or bad, they were very important to me and uh, they almost defined a genre. And I've learned that you can take anyone from anywhere in the world and show them those windows and they know what it is. So, yeah, right. Um, I like Amityville 2 a lot. Amityville 1, I think, is a boring TV movie, but it's fascinating to me. And uh, Amityville 3 is. I can't say it's a great movie, but it's got this goofy, beautiful charm that I just, I love. And you know. Part three, though, has always been a very special one for me, but like I've fallen in love with all of them. I got that box set with all of the 90s ones. See, I wasn't going to cover those, but then I decided to, but I'm going to cover them in a different way. I, I found the, the filmmakers of each one of those movies, and I'm going to let them talk about it in each chapter. So You said you weren't going to cover the Amityville curse, correct? Because that's something separate? Well, you know, it turns out that the word Amityville cannot be copywritten. And, uh, oh, really? You can't say Amityville horror, but you can say Amityville. So I don't know if you're aware, but there's all these amateur barely uh -huh. camcorder movies that have... Like, I've tried. Amityville Toaster, <laughs> Amityville Prison, Amityville whatever. Yeah. And... Um, so they're not part of a franchise. When people write on the internet, oh, there's 19 films so far. No, there's only like, you know, this, the first three. Amityville Curse is technically based on a book by one of the guys. And then so this, that, this, the direct-to-video ones, which are technically part of the canon. And then there's, you know, a couple others, including the remake. So, yeah, but not, yeah. not the 19 amateur movies. I brought up the Amityville Curse because I watched it again a couple times recently. And I really like that movie overall, but um, it's it does feel like they just said, let's just slap the Amityville name on there. However, had they not done that, it would have been like, it, it's Amityville Curse is a fabulous haunted house movie. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know what? The, the interesting part is if it wasn't called Amityville Curse, I probably wouldn't have rented it. But right. it said Amityville. And then when I saw it, I was very betrayed by the fact yeah. that it wasn't the Amityville house. Like, that's not Amityville. They're in Canada, bitch. You know? Yeah. <laughs> well, so people understand. It's it's like a, they call it part four, but it doesn't even take place in the same house. It takes place in Amityville in a different house altogether. 
that looks a little creepier, but it is probably one of the most beautifully shot of the entire series. Yeah. I think. Well, it's the first three were big studio movies and Amityville 3D was such a bomb. Well, not such a bomb. It cost $6 million and made $6 million, but it was already in profit before they even shot it with the pre-sales. So, uh, you know, and that doesn't include living on in video, but that's when they, they just, no more Amityville movies. And this little low-budget company years later did Amityville Curse. So um, that's why it's a little bit different than, than those. But I, I found yeah. the director, and he's just, he was lovely. And, uh, you know, even though his heart wasn't in it, meaning that it wasn't the genre that he was passionate about. Uh, he is surprised mm. that it's lived on. So anyway. Do you have that book, Paperbacks from Hell? Um, I don't, but I heard about it and I contacted the writer, Grady Hendrix, and I mm. had him write a chapter for my Amityville book Shut covering up, all those um Paperback tie-ins and stuff. Oh my God, I had a few of those with the yeah. raised covers. Oh, I yes, love the embossed covers. Yeah, I learned all these neat <laughs> terms. But they would get me to buy the book just based on that cover, and I would either like lose interest or never read it. But oh yeah, oh I never read any of them, but I owned them. I felt like it was important. He was telling me how those things uh, are made and come to fruition, and about the the, the the artists that they would get for the things. And it's a lot like independent film. It really was, you know. Um, them huh. putting these books out yeah i loved it that's i remember halloween three i go to the supermarket i saw that novel i'm like i got this is amazing this is horrifying and the amityville i think amity i don't know one of the books i i i was buying the books at the time because i was at i was at the cusp of my parents allowing me to see these films but I could bring the books home and read them. Sure, it got us to read, right? Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. That, that was my that was my gateway right there. I do have to ask, why Amityville? Well, you know, Amityville is an important movie to me, but I'll admit it probably wasn't my first choice. When Bear Manor Media, <clears throat> when I was working with them, you know, that's the company that's putting it out. You should look them up. They do all these beautiful hardcover books on on film and you know like some of them are very very niche i can't imagine like who would buy them like probably film nerds what what's the name bear what bear manor media they just they just released the new book on like cujo and they wrote the they did the jaws 2 making of uh, yeah they did so so many and they go to the to like film historians and stuff and ask them so but we went back and forth about what movie to cover and uh and a lot of them were, were taken or they were going to be done or they wouldn't have been interesting enough for more than me. <laughs> okay. So um, Amityville. Yeah, I really wanted to do uh, Jaws 3 and 4. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <clears throat> I don't know if they deserve their own hardcover tome, but I started to get more interested in the Amityville thing when um, the, uh, you know, uh, I had the De Laurentiis who did part two and three, Martha De Laurentiis, Dino's wife. Uh, I was introduced to her and she just gave my book so much credibility. So when I was reaching out to people, no one said no as sort of a favor to her because I could have looked like someone who was doing a high school paper, you know? So, right. uh, so and then all these amazing never before seen pictures and she found a boxes of negatives. And uh, so I've had no one, um, say no a couple well, i lost laurie laughlin 
because right we finally because oh, right, yeah. she went to <laughs> finally got to her and her agent and she was like Fort Knox. I mean, geez, I, I even talked to Barbara Streisand on the phone by accident. Um, yeah, Lori Loughlin's people. It's like Fort Knox, and we finally get her to agree, and then the scandal happens. So yeah, no one said no except I had this big fight with. Well, I can't tell you his name because it would be wrong. John Caglione, the makeup effects guy. <laughs> but I get to write about that now because it's awesome. So. And Tess wow. Harper said no, but Tess Harper's got a boring role in part three anyway, so who cares? I don't even care about the, the prose or the words in this book. Just get it for the pictures. These pictures are amazing. Dude, oh, my God. I cannot wait for your book. I love I love watching your updates on Facebook of the new things you're finding and the stuff that – just all of it. It's all fun. Well, I'm, I'm uh, glad that someone appreciates it because it looks like I, – I feel like I'm writing a book for myself. Like who would want to read this other than me? That's right, the but, first step. Write it but, for yourself. But, but what I love is that I'm watching you go through this process, which is what our whole segment is about. You don't have a whole studio of people helping you. No. There's a lot of steps that go into using a photo. You a, lot, know? a lot of steps. And I am learning so much that if I did do this again, I have a beautiful shorthand. And my, my me conducting interviews has gotten better. And uh, it's just, yes, if I ever have to do this again, just like your experience with Scream Queens, that mm. uh, I've yeah, you've a been lot, You've been so. relentless with this. I think it's fabulous. I love watching it progress. Because I have um, nothing to do. <laughs> <laughs> We're all stuck in our homes, just trying to start our own podcast. <laughs> Can you talk about that? Like being a creative person and not having something to do, how do you find something to do? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, well, I don't know if, if you've ever gotten in a, a funk or just, you know, life happens or whatever, and then some, something you realize, well, you know what, I'm not being productive. You know, I'd be a really good therapist for someone else exactly like me. Like, you need to have a project, and then I become obsessed with a project. So, and the book kind of did that. I mean, when I, I quit teaching, which had taken up all my time, and, you know, in 15 years, I, I forfeited a lot of opportunities to make more films and uh, follow a lot of leads, you know, because I was making such good money. It was a very unscrupulous school where I would get like a commission on the students. So, um, but, you know, getting a little project, whether it be something for Crypt TV or, you know, I've written a couple of those bad shark movies under pseudonyms. Uh, it just excites you or have something to look forward to. And maybe that's one of the reasons why I keep extending my deadline on this book because it's, it's, it's always going to get better. Like, well, I could do this. I could, maybe I'll cover all the movies. It's like, no, Brian, just hand the fucking book in. You know, so, right, right, right. Yeah, but to have something to look forward to. I don't know. Were you like me growing up where even a, a movie coming out to the theater, like a new horror movie, was enough to keep you excited for a while or like <laughs> fill in a void? Oh, absolutely. And then I would ruin it for myself by trying to do too much, too much research ahead of time. And building up my expectations so high that there's no way I would be satisfied. I'm excited for the new Halloween movie, you know? I mean, they've helped oh, right. me with all that stuff, and I'm counting down the days. That's keeping me happy. <laughs> Let me ask you a question about that. So, like, Tyler and I have this ongoing discussion between us about the curse of filmmaking and being able to, to experience movies like the average person, let's say. Do you find that you struggle with that when you're watching something like Oh, 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 oh. Well, you know, I know exactly what you're talking about. And um, I'm really good at turning that off. Plus, I we have to be, because let's face it, we like a really disreputable genre. 
And, yeah. if, and if we had right. someone who was well-versed in film, they could probably smack the dick out of our mouths on this. So Word. Don't you dare. <laughs> I earned that dick in my mouth. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty good at, 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 at shutting that off if I need to. It's usually if the movie is really bad, then, then some of it just comes out. You know, I'm, I'm, lately, I am just so anti-pretension these mm-hmm. pretentious movies, and it's, I realize it's almost not even the movie; it's people's reaction to the movie. Like, oh my god, this film is amazing, um, <laughs> and that's right. that's where my feathers will go up. And like, like I got a degree in experimental avant-garde film, bitch, and you know, this, movie, <laughs> this movie is fooling you. You know, <laughs> right? I mean, do, do you see that kind of as horror gatekeeping, where we have loved this shit since the dawn of our existence? And when people outside of the genre come in and make, you know, a blockbuster film and everyone's like, oh, it's so good. It's so everything. You're like, you're not, e- you don't even go here. All right. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, uh, yeah. I, it's, it's like that. I try, I try not to be because if we really trace the origin, most of the movies that we adore were made <laughs> with contempt. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I find that most fascinating that then we use that against new films. And why, why well, they, they, they just were made by, even the people who made them hated them, you know, or they didn't want to do it, or that was the only job they can get. And I think it's time that people realize that John Carpenter is not your friend. <laughs> he <laughs> right. hates what he's doing. He, he hates talking he about it. Checks. He is he just will. in it for the money, and he's making lazy movies. You're not going to tell me Ghost of Mars is any good. And this, <laughs> you know, but he's got a, he's really franchised his name. He's so lazy, even at a convention, he doesn't even look at you. He's watching a, he's watching a football game. <laughs> you know, I had that experience, and it was a little disheartening. But at the same time, I'm like, no, like I grew up watching Big Trouble in Little China on TBS every weekend, and it is perfect for me. Did you see The Ward? One of the last movies he directed. No one went to go see that. Like I did, I did, and I remember nothing about it, but. He has given me a lot of great ideas, and I really loved watching all the special features on the Blu-ray, the DVD, where they took out his score, and it was just the footage before the sound effects came in. And I was like, oh, fuck, there's nothing special about this. It is all in the sound design, in the music, and it helped me understand the workmanlike nature of how he made films. And I was like, oh, I can do that. That's not special. However... He does have that touch to get, make it special. Well, he does have, have that touch. He does have that touch, yes. But he also had the negotiation skills to put his name ridiculously over the title. John Carpenter presents a film by John Carpenter, written by John Carpenter. And uh, you know, I, I love his honesty here because you know he's been honest in, in in interviews where he's like, "I'm in this for the money," and you know, it's funny they have me on the set and I'm getting these big checks. And I didn't have to do anything and. But he said he was driving down Hollywood Boulevard one day in 1983, and he saw this gigantic billboard for Christine. And he said, I realized my name was on it so many times that it was embarrassing. It was, you know, <laughs> and he said, it's, it's, it's Stephen King's Christine. His name was on it like seven times in the credits. And uh, <laughs> he said, God, this is just my own awful ego, but but people are willing to accept it now. And I like that, that candor from him on there. So, but... Um, it's it's funny. I mean, 
people are even, you know, people think he directed Halloween too, which, you know, you've heard the stories where he talks about, he wrote that movie. He didn't want to see it. Didn't want to write it. He had to get drunk to write it. And he wrote a really bad <laughs> I did not know that. No, that's, that's do you, incredible. Do you fully believe that though? Yes, I believe that. Yeah. Okay. I kind of feel like it's the blase pretentious answer. If you just made a hit movie and they want, and they're like, well, here, we want you to do another one. You're like, it's like, what sounds good to say? Right. Oh, this old thing. Yeah. Uh, um, no, with Halloween too, it was that he didn't, he didn't direct it. He, hmm. he wrote a script and the script is, even though this movie has made a monster comeback and everyone's convinced it's good. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> not, it's not good, but I love it. I'm so glad it's there. I grew up loving it, and lately I've been like, what What was I thinking? I mean, we, if we're not going to talk about the wig, it's not worth talking about. How do you get Jamie Lee Curtis to come back after she's almost gone legit? She comes back, top billing, and she does nothing. Nothing. She, she does nothing. She doesn't even speak. And in the last 10 minutes of the movie, she just has to be rescued over and over again by someone else. It's like, oh, my God. So, right. But um, the scenes are, are sort of put in out of order. It's like... Uh, the the uh, the this already all the cops at the Myers house from the beginning and she's taken out in the ambulance and like twenty minutes later we hear Sheriff Brackett find out on the radio that his, that there's been these murders I mean this like everything's a lot of out of order in that it's an adorable movie though I love it but it just doesn't make much sense and what a waste of Jamie Lee <laughs> right I mean she has come back to the well many times. Yes, so, she has. She has. At least they give her something to do. She's aware of how important this movie, this franchise is to people. And I think she's always game. She's, she's aware. To, to, to get that paycheck as well. When she is in promotion mode, she's amazing. She has, she's called Halloween 2. I have it. I, I, I have the interviews where she's called it a terrible movie and no, no one wanted to make it. But then, you know, on, on one Shout Factory interview, she's like, you know, it was a it was a great movie. I mean, there's some great scenes in there. It's like she knows what to do. Yeah, <laughs> Tyler and I saw her in pr- promotion mode, and I was actually really impressed. No, she yeah, she calls it doing the hustle. But I felt betrayed because I was so excited for Halloween H two O, and that's like right when the internet was new for me, and I was yeah, following right. it every day. You know, loading up an HTML website, you know, or whatever, and. Um, and she was so into promoting that movie. I remember her on all the talk shows. And then years later, she talks about like what a horrible experience that movie was and how it wasn't good. And I'm like, wow, is she going to do that with Halloween 2018? <laughs> right, right. I actually, no, H2O was like my, that was my era of when I was going to the theaters with my friends. This was post-Scream. Slashers were big again. It was so much fun. I remember being there opening night. It and like, like that movie I, played like gangbusters. It played so well. Do you know that that got the highest test scores in Miramax's history? It's so good. I loved it. I saw H two O on the same screen that we played Scream Queen in L A. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay. At the Chinese Theater on Hollywood Boulevard. I lived on Hollywood Boulevard. So when that came out, I was kind of bored with with horror at that time. It wasn't I, like New Nightmare and stuff. Fine, they're good. I just didn't care. Uh, and Halloween H2O was the first one that made me excited again. Sure. You know, it might have something to do with the age you were when you saw it. But yeah. it was it played really, really well. And getting back to the the test scores of that, that's one of the reasons why the production was infamous. Because one of the great composers, John Ottman, you know, he's done yeah. all the Brian Singer movies, gay John Ottman, you yeah. know, 
um, for some somehow they get him to do the score. And while he was working on the score, they test screened the, the movie with the music from Scream. And um, it tested so well, Harvey Weinstein said, let's just put it out this way. And they never used John Ogden's score. They only oh used my God, the really? title. So if you listen to that movie, 90% of the music is tracks from, are tracks from Scream. And, um, Marco Bellamitri or whatever his Marco name is. Marco Beltrami, yeah. It's just recycled. And um, that's what Harvey Weinstein said. It, it got something like a 95 uh on uh, the the test scoring, so they put it out like that, and uh, you know now it now it doesn't hurt. But I remember when I went to see it, the scream was still fresh in my head because I loved it so much. I'm like that scream. Yeah. <laughs> now I gotta rewatch it. I Did gotta... you see Amityville: The Awakening, the big budget one with Jennifer Jason Lee that barely got released? It's one of my favorites. Is it really? Uh, I have you know I I found the director and uh, just his story about. I mean, it's like Apocalypse Now, like everything's against you when you make a movie. And the stuff that he said about Harvey Weinstein just shooting himself in the foot with this movie. I, I don't know this story. Can you tell me? Do you remember? I don't know if you remember, but the trailers came out for it. And then the movie didn't come out for two years. It kept getting right. delayed and delayed. And uh, I fell in love with those trailers. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely loved it. I loved the movie when I finally watched it. I did not love the ending. All reshot. All you can, reshot. You can explain this, but this movie actually is beautiful, has big names, was well-written, has great effects, and they just dropped it. What the fuck? And I don't know why. It's Well, some of it has to do with that scandal breaking, and they even took his name off of it. But um, they were shooting it. It was supposed to come out, and then Harvey Weinstein kept ordering these reshoots, Um based on the test screening. Now I've talked to people who are at the test screening and they said that movie played really well. There was an energy with the audience, but he just kept ordering all these reshoots. And it got to the point where the little girl, McKenna Grace was like growing up. Um, and uh, so they had to leave her out of the reshoots. The director said, there's a scene like Bella Thorne is in the hallway and then she walked into a room and suddenly she's got tits because she went through puberty. <laughs> and um, so it was two years later, they're still filming these pathetic reshoots of uh, like a new ending and he wanted this. But Harvey would greenlight something and approve the script and the next day they'd be shooting it and he'd be like, what are you doing? I don't like this. So maybe you should do it like that or maybe you should do it like this. Like really uninvested but sort of a taskmaster. Was this like a write-off? I don't know if it was, a, you know, it, 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 it might have been, but if it was a write-off, then he wouldn't have dabbled so much, you know, or, or, or been such a, you know, whatever. Right. Like, was there a plan to restart the franchise? Yes, with there was a, a, a plan. And, you know, those commercials that you and I saw, even the trailer in the theater, that costs a lot of money. Plus, yeah. it was perfect timing because Jennifer Jason Lee was just getting, you know, re-nominated for an Oscar for... Inglorious Bastards. Oh no! Hateful Eight. Hateful, Hateful Eight. Hateful Eight. So what a what a good time, you know? Right. Um, and it was going to be the 40th anniversary of Amityville. So they they put a lot of eggs in that basket, and then they just dropped them. They kept they kept pushing back the date to the point where even I didn't care. And I remember the night that it came out, it was like it was already on YouTube for free. Yeah. yeah. It, Insane. I bought it. I, I was like, I just want to see this. I really like it. Yeah, he said I, it was just a, a mess. But um, he said that original cut, is, if, you know, which doesn't exist anymore, um, really was his movie, and he's very proud of it. Speaking of that, um, 
the news right now is that HBO Max is going to put out the Snyder Cut of Justice League in this kind of unprecedented way of retroactively giving directors back their films to deliver the original intention of how they're supposed to be seen. Do you think that practice will extend beyond superhero movies? Could we get the original Amityville Awakening cut? I don't think I don't think people care about it, you know, but people I mean those the movies that you're talking about, the the, the Zack Snyder ones, people do care about. But I I truly think a lot of that is uh, generated self-generated by the studio or whatever to sell more. I mean, William Freakin finally admitted that all that Exorcist stuff coming back to the theater with the, the, the footage you've never seen was, was purely mercenary. Right, right. He admitted that. So I'm a little bit dubious of like, oh, it's the director's real vision. But... Um, oh, right. Like, But isn't that... Don't we all love a marketing gimmick? Yeah, but... you know, Like, isn't that what horror genre, like, William Castle was, like, banking on? It's like, regardless of what you think about this movie, I'm going to give you a gimmick that you cannot deny. Right. I No, I love those gimmicks. But then the, then the ones were like, I, you know, th- did you hear what the studio did? And I'm going to support Zack Snyder. They don't, they don't realize that they might be getting little hoodwinks so you can go see a movie again. I don't know. It right. might have been generally he got screwed on it, but... It's like it's almost like the remember when we were into Blu-rays and the, the double dipping because you have a movie and it was a definitive deluxe edition and then the next year they come out with another one with a better cover. Oh my god, I can't tell you. I bought that like original uncut edition of Friday the Thirteenth, and I'm like, did they just put all the heads and tails back into every shot so that all the edits took longer? Absolutely, yeah. and they probably had some of the stuff ready to go, and like we'll save it for another one. So, but I'll, I mean, it's brilliant. I'll keep buying them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we <laughs> are aware that we're being played, and we're signing up for it. You know, I directed. Betsy Palmer's last movie, and uh, I have a nice story to tell. We became very, 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 very good friends, um, and we did. We we were good friends to the end of her life. But I mean, she was just funny because she didn't have any social filter. She was talking about on the, on the set all these young people about not landing, and uh, she's like, "Joan Van Ark was such a cunt, you know. She'd never let you get your close up." And um, and she's a good actress, though, a good actress, but. Uh, Oh, she would throw everyone under the bus. Like, we all know that Adrian was fucking Sean. I mean, it was no secret, you know. <laughs> but anyway, uh, after shooting, she'd, like, call and say, Thank you, that was so wonderful. And, you know, oh, I'm so sorry I had trouble with my lines. Because she couldn't remember her lines. And uh, I had to do a lot of editing around her. But anyway, she was at, she did some interview with some website. And someone sent it to me. And they asked her about my movie, which hadn't been completed yet. And she's like, oh my God, that piece of shit. You know, oh, how are they going to finish it? So I got my, I called her and I like, what, why are you doing this? And she just got really quiet. She said, Brian, I'm a bitch. I'm an old lady. I like to gossip. I am so sorry. I'm like, you don't want to go Brian versus Betsy on this. Why don't you go learn your lines, Betsy? Do you want me to, you want me to put your raw footage out where you couldn't? You know? <laughs> she was on the set saying things like, when I did Mr. Roberts with John Ford, we'd spend uh, four weeks on a shot. I'm like, your character didn't even have a name in that movie. <laughs> anyway, she apologized and she made me go to her apartment. She said, please come up for lunch. And she gave me an envelope with $1,000 cash in it 
from her convention appearances. She says, I am so sorry. And she was wonderful after that. And uh, when she died, I got uh, a call. I got contacted by a lawyer, and she had left me money in her will. Blood money. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh, my God. It wasn't <laughs> a lot. It's almost like getting that $2 in your birthday card from Grandma, you know, with the word Christmas, Christmas crossed out and birthday written. I mean, you could think of it that way, or you could think of it that she wrote your name down and had to get it notarized by a lawyer. <laughs> yes, that is that is true. Yeah. She had to involve other people so that you could get those $2. That is That means I'm, something. I'm going to dine out on that now. I just thought it was a, a funny blood money story, but... Um, I was just so... You got to remember, mommy's always watching. (laughs) I only get starstruck with with people that the normal people wouldn't care about, you know? (laughs) Who who are you currently starstruck by? Well, you know, I I would get starstruck if I met Dana Kimmel from Friday the 13th Part 3, you know? I've never met her, but I would get starstruck by, but... You know, I wouldn't care if I met Hugh Jackman. I don't know. <laughs> you love you love a lot of the old time horror, which I absolutely love. I was talking with Tyler about Windows <laughs> from 1980. Yes. You laugh. Oh, yes. I gave Windows you, another chance know? the other night. Yeah, yeah I've, I've known about Windows. I remember Windows when everyone still hated it, you know. But okay. <laughs> yeah, but I watched it again the yeah. other night. Like, let me give it another chance. What did you think watching it the other night? It's a terrible movie. I always thought it was a terrible yeah. movie. It's a stinker. Why do you say it's terrible? I didn't think it was terrible. Bat- Listen, it was Gordon Willis who directed it. And he's, yeah. it's, it's beautiful to look at, but it's just... It's it's not even the, the, the fact that it was so un-PC. It's just like, I can't believe... It's like Talia Shire's character is so mopey. Uh, well, yeah, why would any was, why would anyone be infatuated with her? You know, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's got one of those things, and this is another thing where I lose a lot of friends. But just keep a boring police procedural out of my movie. I don't want yeah. cops sniffing around for clues that I already know the answer to, and it takes up forty five minutes of the movie. And she just gets bogged down, and that actor who plays her love interest is um, is just forgettable. And but um, you know, it's made a huge sort of cult comeback, but. Uh, I don't know if it deserves it, but (laughs) probably not. I just thought it was one, you know, Tyler and I spent a lot of time researching homosexual villains. And this one kind of slipped under the radar for us. We didn't, we didn't notice it. Uh, So I was kind of surprised because it's so blatant about it from the start of the film. I said, the one redeeming thing about this is that it wasn't a, her being the lesbian wasn't the punchline. It wasn't like the big reveal. It is. So, still, it is sort of just dropped that she is a lesbian, like in a, a throwaway scene. Yeah. So it isn't a big reveal. No. So much about that should have been fabulous. Yeah, it should have been fabulous. Anyway. But but again, you know, it's our our revision or looking at it through a lens. It, it is it is a movie that sort of hates gay people a little bit, even though we just think we can we can reevaluate it all we want. But that movie was predatory lesbian. Fear your, you know, why straight people and gay people can't be friends a little bit. It is sort of exploiting that, but, you know, we can look at that. She hires some thug to rape her so she can jerk off to the recording of her. (laughs) It's terrible. Yeah. Terrible movie. It it is terrible, but some of those movies that aren't good for us now are being, are are sometimes shockingly being reevaluated and embraced. And that gets me a little bit mad for all the people that, did all the heavy lifting, sort of fighting them when they were coming out. Yes. They were made with hatred. 
Um, yeah. But um, I don't know. But the Windows is just it's just an odd movie, and that's two career killers in a row for Talia Shire. That and Prophecy, where she just pounced through the whole thing. Oh <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, they should have switched the actresses. It should have been Elizabeth Ashley. Like she's the one I want to hang out with. You know. I didn't think of that. I think that's. Yeah. That's imagine true. if the tables were turned. Because Talia Shire looks like that that creepy librarian that would become obsessed with you <laughs> because you said hi. You know. So, I'm gonna shift gears really quick here. If you were stuck on a desert island, what 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 five favorite albums would you have to have with you? Record albums. Yeah. This is where I'm a bigger horror fan than you. No, I'm just joking. I don't. I'm not into music. Isn't that weird? Yeah, it really is. Come on. I'm not. I swear to God, I was. Okay, I'm, favorite soundtracks. Oh, soundtracks. That's different. Yeah, yeah. So let's do that. Um, what is your favorite soundtrack? I remember a soundtrack I was just obsessed with, and I had to. Back when you couldn't get them in stores, you have to special order them. Like one of them would be Halloween Two, which I would listen to over and over again until the record scratched and everything. So um, mm. I don't know. I don't, I, there's so many that I like. I mean, the, the the scores for Halloween and Elm Street are so good. I, so you like synth synth sound? Well, the synth sound. I like the orchestra stuff too. The synth sound made that comeback a couple of years ago with, uh, what's it called? Um, Stranger Things. Stranger Things, yeah. I think it's getting a little old now, you know, maybe because it doesn't have the integrity, it's trying to be a throwback. But, um, you know, some of those synth scores are, are, like, some of those shitty movies, or not shitty movies, genre movies, are getting a huge LP release with a new cover and they're $60. Like, I just bought yeah, the soundtrack yeah. to... Slumber Party Massacre on a gatefold, beautiful $40 <laughs> yep. record. And that movie sounds like it was two fingers on a keyboard. Um, do, you, do you remember The Boogeyman? <laughs> I bought that one, too. <laughs> that's 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 one of my favorite, favorite synth scores ever. Yeah. That and Firestarter. Yeah, Tangerine Dream, baby. Well, but, you know, yeah. I, I live with uh, Cafe Himbo himself, Joe Zazzo, who you know. And uh, yep. Joe is the person you should really talk to about soundtracks. He's almost like a savant when it comes to that. Um, he just, he can tell you anything about any soundtrack, horror soundtrack, genre soundtrack, and what would be his favorites, he would bore you to death. But he knows all about the... Oh, he wouldn't bore me to death. We could do a whole show. Bore you Joe. to death. B-O-R-E. <laughs> hey, wait, hold on. Hey, Joe, what is your favorite track from Firestarter? Charlie, Charlie the Kid, track number four in Firestarter. See, there you go. I love All it. Right. See, he didn't even need to take a breath. He had his answer prepared. Yep. And uh, of course, I love Omen, but I love the soundtrack to Omen 2 more. Same. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna send you my interview with Lee Grant if I haven't sent it uh, for Diabolique magazine, where I, she thinks we're gonna be talking about in the heat of the night and uh, shampoo her Oscar-winning movie, and I'm like, no, we're going right, <laughs> we're going to visiting hours of Swarm and Airport 77. So dear, so. <laughs> <laughs> But it's really funny, and I think I got her to change her mind on those movies. I said, you know, you've got kind of a cult following for the movies that you didn't want to make. She's like, really? I said, yeah, you punching Brenda Vaccaro in Airport 77 when you're all drunk with your jeweled fingers? I said, that's like a big gay moment. She's like, oh, my God, I had no idea. Aww. And I said, you know, in visiting hours when the giant Michael Ironside is chasing you and, you know, you're like a 60-year-old final girl and you run into the elevator and the door's closing and he sticks the knife in. I said, you take off your high heel shoe and start whacking him. I said, that's a drag queen move. 
Yeah. Right. Right. That's. I remember liking that movie a lot more than I thought I was going to. <laughs> it's not just fashion; it's function. <laughs> that movie was surprisingly good. I I really I really like that movie. I always have, and that movie is like an hour and forty five minutes. It's about fifteen minutes longer than the average one, and yeah. they really do flesh out the characters. It just got a bad reputation because it was banned in other countries. But it it, it was mean. I mean, when they stab Linda Pearl, you know, and oh. she's like. Dying in front of her daughter. I mean, it's but it's, it's powerful. It plays really well. And that, um, but the, I think I got Lee to uh, to, to re- maybe reevaluate it a little bit. She said something like, "You know, what you're saying might make a little sense because I've been doing autograph shows and I get a lot of posters for that movie with people wanting to sign it." And she said, "I did have a lovely time in Canada. Now that I'm thinking about it, making it, and my friend Bill Shatner was in it, and." Uh, I got to use my high school French, so maybe she's reevaluating it. <laughs> Finally, a use. But the but the other thing, visiting hours. If you look back on it, that was almost a subgenre of movies from 1980 to 1982 that I call Anchor Woman in Peril, where the final girl wasn't a teenager. It was someone who makes a lot of money with a professional, high-profile job who is, you know at least in their 30s. We had The Howling. Tyler brought The Howling to my attention. I hadn't thought about it. Right. I mean, literally, she was an anchor, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, she was an anchor. And then there's, uh, you know, The Seduction with Morgan Fairchild. and uh, I am obsessed with Morgan Fairchild, and I feel like she deserves a Scream Queen documentary, but I don't know what her backstory is, so. Now she's fighting back with the one weapon she has, her hair. (laughs) (laughs) It's bulletproof. Yeah. Uh, of course, visiting hours. Um, oh, my God. Why am I drawing a black? Oh, Eyes of a Stranger with Lauren Tweez, one of my favorite slasher movies, which admittedly Ooh. is really vulgar. But, I mean, I actually cut out a rape scene. I cut it out of my 35 millimeter print of it because I couldn't defend it. I just wanted it out of there. Ooh. But uh, that's a really, really good one. And these were all, these all came out within, like, months of each other it was very weird some people tie it to that whole jessica savage stuff uh you know the the news anchor who all the rules change because the sexism or whatever but uh you know it was sort of like a reagan era get back women some people have tied that gravitas to it so but uh if you haven't seen eyes of a stranger i'm trying to get this movie to make a comeback and shout factory my friend jeff nelson he's tried to get the rights to it from warner brothers but uh, they're not interested Really? Nasty little rear window. It rips off rear window when a stranger calls, um, wait until dark, but it rips off all the good parts. <laughs> oh, so it's it's a highlight reel. With gore effects by Tom Savini that were added after the movie was done. So Morgan, I mean, Lauren Tweez thinks she's in a thriller, and then she's like, <laughs> oh my God, this head's... I, I have one more question before we get into our, our wrap-up okay. kind of game that we like to play. But first of all, I want to hear about ghostwriting and your experience with that. If you are allowed to talk about that or if you can kind of explain what kind of life that is like. That happens so much. And if you knew how much that happened, it's very, very depressing. Um, uh, ghostwriting are, are coming in and uh, sort of script doctoring or whatever. And it's... In theory, it was like, I don't know any better than the writer who did this, but often it is a financial thing. When I've been called in to do it, and, mo- and this is mostly not on big movies. This is on, you know, 
cheap stuff, like a Corman stuff. It's been to pare the movie down and until it's shootable, you know, because a writer can be like, you know, let your imagination explode, but then it's it's got too many characters or too many locations. So most of the time, it has been to make the movie shootable for the budget, eliminating right. the characters, eliminating some of the set pieces, or rearranging it a little bit. So that's mostly the stuff that I do. And you know, I'm dealing with the Amityville three now, and the right the the writer that's credited. He his, they used his script as a foundation, but they got William Gray from Prom Night, and he rewrote everything, and it's really, really pared down to the movie that we see to make it. Um, he, he doesn't get any credit. He lost an arbitration on that one. So, um, so the ghostwriting on that, it's almost like doing. It's it's almost as glamorous as doing like script coverage. It wasn't very easy. I do know that on the movie The Flintstones, there were thirty-two writers. What? 32 writers, not all of them are credited, of course, but 32 writers. And the, the, the funny part is they 32 people who've never met. So That's wild. I haven't had those horrible experiences, but I've heard stories that, you know, a writer wants to contribute and, and they just, they want to add something even though it doesn't need it just so they can put their stamp on it. We had that in film school too. We always right. learned to put something bad in your rough cut of your movie so one of the faculty members can say take it out to make them feel more invested in it and then they'll give you a better review right because they're going to take something out regardless and it might as well be the thing that's most glaringly obvious absolutely every every profession has that tactic yeah we we have also something called hitting the better button we'll push the better button with audio so when people say they want they want you to change something that there is not correct i'm gonna write that down hitting the better button oh my god that's great you hit it you're like how's that does that sound better oh yeah it's the same thing Mm -hmm. i've also i've heard of people like in rough in editing where you save your first rough cut and then as you go through the notes on the last day, you send that first rough cut again. Yeah. They're like, oh, I love it. Perfect. Absolutely. <laughs> Next up, we want to play a little game with you. Okay. It is, we like to call it Say Something Nice. Oh. It's a, it's a quick answer game. You can be sincere or sarcastic, but you have to say something nice. Are you ready, Roman? Yeah, I'm ready. All right. Brian Norton. Say something nice about social distancing. I hate people, so it's good. Oh, no, that's bad. I'm sorry. (laughs) Say something nice about social distancing. Um, Okay, ask me again. Everyone be quiet. All right. Say something nice about social distancing. It's time. It gives me time to reflect on interactions with people and how we do that. The fact that I wasn't able to do it. Yeah. Okay. Say something nice about film school. I think film school is very, very important and it doesn't get enough credit. People are like, take the money that you spent in film school and just make a film. Don't. I like that. So good. Say something nice about horror films directed by non-horror fans. Probably they're better. Okay. Say something nice about the Amityville remake. The babysitter scene is funny. <laughs> Say something nice about Facebook Live videos. I just discovered them and I just did one and it was fun. Thank you, Katrina. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Katrina. Thank you, Katrina. Do you know that movie's getting a remake? 
I know, yeah. and that's ridiculous. And if they don't have the thank you Katrina line, I will be upset. That's the fan <laughs> service I demand. But it, you know, it had real life wisdom and I'm right on top of it, Rose, is the right answer for every question. Can, oh, can I tell my Joanna Cassidy story really quick? Yeah, please. So uh, I see her at this fancy cocktail party I was invited to only because I had interviewed Lee Grant. And there are all these famous people there, Michael Douglas, Catherine Zeta-Jones. But I see Joanna Cassidy having an intimate conversation with two people, and I don't know what possessed me. I walked right up there, interrupted, and said, I'm right on top of that rose. And she just (laughs) gave me this side eye and then went back to talking. And it's one of the things I regret the most in life, and it's going to haunt me. I couldn't help but You really should be ashamed, actually. (laughs) But you know what? We all wanted to do the same thing, so that just proves how... Brave you are. I interrupted a conversation. Something possessed me to do it. I apologized to her on Instagram, and she just put a heart next to my comments, so maybe all is forgiven. Uh, right, right. Or as long she as she didn't remember. block you, so you're fine. She didn't call the police. You're okay. <laughs> terrible. It's terrible. I love her. Um, as we wrap up, I would like to give you the opportunity now, as a professor, to assign homework to our faithful listeners. Was there anything you're watching, reading, seeing that you think is absolutely necessary that people should go check out? Oh, assigned homework. Uh, no. <laughs> Good. Go outside. Live your life. <laughs> but, uh, no, no. Uh, assigned homework, I would say learn your director's names and not just the famous ones. That's fantastic. So now we have our final segment, which is called For God's Sake, Get the Fuck Out. I'm just kidding. It's not a segment. That's it's just, just where we tell you to go home. <laughs> Stay home. It should be a segment. Yes. Right. <laughs> Isn't that the best tagline? Samuel Z. Arkoff said that that tagline made the movie at least fifty million dollars. I fucking believe it. It works. Yeah. For God's sakes, get out. And Brian, thank you. Thank you, Brian. All right. Call me every fifteen minutes. All right. We I want to know what you're wearing. Okay. Later. your first episode of Hotel that you directed, or your second, it starred Catherine Mary Stewart. Very cute. Oh, yes. Well, I remember how you felt like you were going to fall in and drown those blue eyes, because she's delectable. I'd love to see what she's done in the last few years. I'll look it up. She's in New York. Gorgeous. Her children just graduated from college. Dean? Yeah. Oh, shit. (laughs) Honey, did you ever tell her to bring lunch at 2.30? No. No, I didn't. Oh, God. Okay. Mm. God damn it, woman.